Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Good morning. Recently on a flight from Texas home, I had the opportunity, my seatmate, and actually I don't know how many of you fly very often, but I often think, dear Lord, please give me an empty seat beside me. And then I stop and I say, no, that's not right. Uh, Lord, give me someone that I can share the gospel with or I can be a blessing to. And he often answers that prayer. And on my travels back home, I was sitting next to a lady from Texas who had just gone through a recent ugly divorce, whose son was a college student in a university in Texas who had been murdered as he was uh, involved in an Uber incident. She had gone online after this and had found a friend in Pakistan. And she was telling me about she'd met this guy. She went over there. She's been living over there now for about six months, was going and coming, and how good he was to her. He had a resort at the foothills of the Himalayas. He was very wealthy. On and on and on and on. I said, uh, but tell me about his, she was, she was very clearly a person of Christian faith. I said, tell me about his faith. She said, well, he's, he's Muslim. And uh, I just kind of got quiet. And she said, what do you think about that? I said, well, you're a Christian, right? She said, yes. I said, you have a, do, you, do you embrace your faith strongly? Oh, yes. And I said, he's Muslim, right? I said, what about those competing faiths and values? Oh, I, I, I don't think that's going to be a problem. We've got this all worked out. We've, I've talked to the imam, and the imam's talked to my priest, and we've had these conversations, and we're going to get this. And I said, you know, the Bible says, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Isn't there going to be some conflict here? At the very central part of your being, your faith? Well, I don't know. I really think we can get this worked out. And I could tell she was so uncertain. And I said, you know, what about his view of, of uh, life and what it's all about? What about his view of marriage? She said, well, I know he can, uh, it's permissible for him to take at least up to four wives. I said, uh, how are you going to handle that? He said, well, well, he's assured me that would never happen. I said, okay. I said, what about the laws that allow him to beat you? Well, <clears throat> you could only beat to a certain limit. And, uh, but he's assured me that would never happen. And in this whole course of this conversation, I watched a woman in her early 50s literally in turmoil and torment as she worked with competing value systems going on in her life, trying to merge those two, trying to somehow ease one into the other, thinking that you can actually do that. This week and the next time I'm here in a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about allegiance to Christ in an age of rivals. You guys literally live in an educational religious ghetto. You're saturated with intelligent, 
highly capable faculty sharing philosophy, sharing education, sharing the Bible with you. But I'm not gonna come at this as a philosopher or necessarily as a theologian, hopefully good theology, but I wanna talk to you in, in these next six sessions as a practitioner. I really wanna bring it right down to where you live, where a college student would live today. Christ's allegiance to Christ in an age of competing values. In one of the last prayers Jesus prayed over his disciples and ultimately over all of us, he turned to his father and he said, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In this high priestly prayer, as Jesus prayed for those community of disciples around him and ultimately for all of us, these are the men that were going to launch a new kingdom. <clears throat> You're a part of that new kingdom. You and I live within the kingdom of God. But one thing is very clear about that kingdom. That kingdom is radically countercultural. It goes against the grain of this world, the philosophies of this world, the value system of this world. It's very, very different. In Jesus' prayer, he literally was praying in anguish. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. God isn't interested in us leaving the world or being so otherworldly that we're of no use or value to this world. But he is interested that you and I be kept from the evil one. That's just, he's not trying to build a wall so a forktail Satan won't chase us. He's talking about the satanic values, this present world's value system. They are not of this world just as I am not of this world. That's got to be a profound yet simple explanation of the kingdom of God. What it really means to live in the kingdom, it means you're of the world but not of this world. The Christian was never meant to go along with the world. You and I never dance to its tune. We don't march to its drummer. We're supposed to stand out. The Sermon on the Mount, even a careless reading, a casual reading, you can't walk away from reading the Sermon on the Mount with understanding here are the core values of the kingdom of God. It's an alternative society to the one that you and I are submerged in, the one that we live in. And you can't, <clears throat> you can't leave that sermon without recognizing we are called to be different. We're not called to be like everybody else. We are called to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hid, a salt in a very, very corrupt society. Light in a dark world. That's who, as a matter of fact, I believe one of the key ideas in the Sermon on the Mount is uniqueness. 
If you salute those that salute you, what makes you any different than anybody else? If you're kind to those that are kind to you, what makes you so different from everybody else out there? <clears throat> if you sort of do what everybody else does, what makes you different? And the uniqueness, the thing that makes us different is that we embrace the values of the kingdom of God. However, recent Barner research shows the church-going Protestants, that's us, church-going Protestants at only 23% state that if some aspect of my life is not right in God's eyes, I make the necessary changes. 77% of people who sit by you in church, and maybe you, say, it doesn't matter if what I do is not right in God's eyes, I'm not changing it. The church, that's you and I. The church has a responsibility to do our best to contextualize the message of Christ to a diverse environment. I get it. But as we do so, our goal is not just cultural contextualization, nor is it cultural capitulation. Our goal is to do our best to take the values of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the values of this word, and live them out in this present world. It's interesting how Paul said it. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. John warned and said it like this. He said, love not the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For that is in the world, the de listen to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. He said, those things are not of the Father, but of the world. Paul adds to that when he said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not your big problem. We're wrestling against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Quite frankly, if you and I had eyes to see, if we had the ability to look into the spiritual realm, we could see those forces arrayed against us. Satan has no new strategy. It's just an age-old strategy that he uses to undermine God's people and to get them to conform to this present world. C.S. Lewis said it like this in his book, Screwtape Letters. He said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turns, without milestones or signposts. That's the best way to hell. And he's right. The book of Daniel chapter 1 gives us amazing insight into this subtle strategy of Satan that's been used in the ancient past and has used this very moment right here on our campus, on this campus. It's, it's, you're going to see it at work. Daniel gives us that window into the ancient past, to that strategy. You remember the story of Daniel and his friends 
The Bible tells us there was four of them. Other sources of history says there were about 70 of these young boys. They took Hebrew boys that were, we would use the, the phrase blue blood. They were of our upper social class. They were handsome. They were intelligent. They, were, they made a perfect score on the SAT. They were sharp guys. He wanted the very best because his plan was to melt them down, turn them into good Chaldeans and then send them back to the land of Israel to serve as ambassadors and liaisons to do the will of Nebuchadnezzar. The point is he wanted to melt them down and turn them in. But how was he going to do this? How was he going to take these strict religious Hebrew kids and melt them down and turn them into good Chaldeans? It's very interesting how, what he does. He uses three things to do it. It's amazing. Number one, he, he changes their name. What in the world has that got to do with it? Well, if you go back and read their early names, that they, their original names, every one of those names was a reflection of the character of the true God. The names that he gave them was a reflection of the character of the Chaldean gods. So there's two things here. He wanted to disconnect them from their religious heritage, their religious roots, and disconnect them from their family values. And in doing so, he could begin, the beginning, he could create confusion in their minds. Ultimately, he would melt them down, turn them into good Chaldeans. The second thing that he was going to do was train them. They were going to go through a three-year educational process. And this was primarily intellectual programming to, to, to change the way they think. Does it matter how you think? <laughs> oh, oh, yes. It matters. Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. There's nothing wrong with the educational process here forming the way you think because it's a safe educational process. Nothing wrong with changing your mind. Nothing wrong with being educating your mind. Nothing wrong with enlightening your mind. But a lot of people boast about an open mind. Oh, I've got, I've got an open mind to everything. There's nothing wrong in a strictest sense with having our being willing to hear something out. But some people brag about an open mind and the kind of mind they brag about being open is like an open pit. Everything falls into it. There are no filters. There are no, there's nothing to filter out the bad stuff. Nebuchadnezzar was banking on the fact that I'm going to change the way they think. And if I can change the way they see the world and see life and see God, I can change them. And he was right. But the thing that amazes me the most in all of this was the last thing. Do you remember what it was? They're going to eat at the king's table or they were going to have food delivered to them that came from the king's table for three years. Daniel and his friends accepted the name change. They accepted the education. But Daniel, this teenage kid, drew a line and said, I'm not eating that stuff. I won't do it. Have you ever, have you ever wondered why? Why draw a line in the sand? Why would a 14, 15-year-old kid look at the most powerful man in the world and say to him, I'm not doing it? Well, there was a reason. 
Actually, there were two reasons. One's, one's obvious, the other maybe not so obvious. One is the word of God forbid him to eat this stuff dedicated to idols. So he drew a line where the word of God drew the line. And in allegiance to Christ in this age of rivals, you and I have to draw a line where the word of God draws the line in our life. But it wasn't only that. Daniel was wise enough, sharp enough, smart enough to know that if I allow an opening in my appetites and I allow <clears throat> this food to touch my palate and I do so for three years, there won't be any going back. There's no going back. There's an old saying, if you've ever been to Paris, you'll never go back to the farm. Well, maybe there's one you can relate to. If you've ever been to Charleston's Crab House, you're not going to eat cheap shrimp at Golden Corral anymore. <laughs> the point is, he fully understood the danger of opening the desires of his flesh, the appetites to this king and his table. He got it. And he said, I'm not going to do that. Why? I'll tell you why. Because there are paper-thin cuts to the soul that Satan will use to insert his hooks and his value system into us. For over half my life, I've listened to young men and young you, young men and young women, just like you, explain and give all the rationales for why you can do this and why this is not a problem and this is okay. I, I, I got a feeling, I think I've heard about all there is to hear on everything. Some fairly simple, some fairly shocking. But one thing you don't get, there are paper-thin cuts to the soul. A prominent minister told a story about being awakened in the middle of the night by a doctor that attended his church. She called him, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, he, he grabs the phone, he, he says, what, what's going on? And she said, she, said, she said to her pastor, he said, you got to get up, you got to pray for me right now. And he said, what happened? He told us, she told this amazing story. She worked in the large hospital, the emergency room. They said they rushed a woman in here tonight and the nurses and others were prepping her, getting ready. She'd had a massive cardiac arrest and it appeared we were going to have to do open heart surgery. We're gonna to have to do something to try to save her. And they stripped her down, piled all the stuff that was with her one side of the room and the emergency room. And we started the process. We shocked that didn't work. And I thought to myself, you know, if I could just massage this woman's heart. And she said, we took a, we opened up the rib cage. I forced my gloved hand through and I began to massage the heart. But it failed and we lost her. When we, be when we began to back away from the body and start cleaning things up, said so the nurses noted, noticed puncture marks on her thighs, on her abdomen. A closer look, we realized that this was a woman of the streets. She was, she was a druggie. She said, I turned. She said, I'd seen many, but wasn't shocked. So I turned and she said, when I started to wash up, I noticed my latex glove had a slight slash on one finger. She said, I quickly washed it off, pulled it off, and noticed my finger had a slight cut 
where I'd gone through the bones and it cut. First thing we did was test the blood for AIDS. It comes back positive. And she's asking her pastor, she said, if one single little infinitesimal amount of that blood gets into me, I could have AIDS. Pray for me. There are paper thin cuts to the soul. If we allow the thinking, the strategy, the mind of this present world and Satan to just get a little in, where that can go. That's his strategy, age old strategy. He hasn't really improved it. It's the world's value system. If he can get you to think like this present world, if he can get you to think like this world thinks about your body, about your behavior, about how you spend your leisure time, about how you entertain yourself, what you value, what you boast in, what you glory in, what your ambitions are, (laughs) if he can get you down that path, he may well have you. Remember what John said? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. What is the world? I define it like this, the life of human society is organized under the power of evil. There is a prevailing philosophy out there a value system out there called this present world. And it's competing. And it's trying to get you to live and think and talk and walk like it does. You say, is this really this serious? It's dead serious to me. Here's why. What are the essential marks of a pagan or a worldly way of life? Well, here they are. Number one, it's a focus on gratifying the desires of the flesh. That's that's one of its focuses. I want what my body wants, and I should have it. Number two, it's a captivation with the outward show of things without inquiring into their real value. Oh, man, let's do this with no sense of thought about what the real value system is lying behind it. Three, it's a boasting of what one has and does. An arrogance relating to my external circumstances reflected in my wealth, my rank, and my dress. Let me simplify it for you. A pagan, someone who is not of the kingdom of God, Not a Christian, and not all non-Christians are pagans. I don't mean to say that. But here's what they're governed by. Their base desires, false values, and egotism. Those are their core values. That's what drives that world. It's interesting in the Sermon on the Mount, again, Jesus in chapter 6 talks about 
the values. And he uses the word the Gentiles. He uses that word broadly to mean non-Christian people in this present world, those who are governed by this present world. He says they store up the wrong treasure. They serve the wrong master. They seek the wrong things. And what did Jesus say that if you're of the kingdom of God in, in 633, what did he say? He said, he said, you as children of the kingdom should seek what? Make a matter of first importance, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff will be added as you need it. So do you prioritize in your life, this is an essential value, as a member of a kingdom that is countercultural to everything around you, do you make the kingdom of God first in your life? Is it a priority to you? How do you know that? What kind of dashboard indicators do you have to really know that? How do you, how do you, how do you shuck that down to the cob and find out what's under the kernels? How do you do it? It's interesting what Jesus said in that same chapter. He said, you want to know if your kingdom priorities are, you're putting it first place? Here's how you know. He said, what are your anxieties? What do you worry about? What preoccupies your mind and you focus on? He said, think about that. And he said, you'll find a priority. He said, what are your activities? He said, the Gentiles run here, they're in there going. He said, what do you, how do you, what's your activities? You'll find the things you give yourself to, you're going to find a priority. And he said, what are your ambitions? What are you seeking after? Your anxieties, your activities, and your ambitions will determine what your priorities are in your life. So, the essential values of the kingdom of God, Jesus said, experiencing his kingdom, expressing the values of his kingdom, and extending the boundaries of his kingdom. That are the priorities of those who live in the kingdom of God. And here it is in closing. What are the essential marks of a Christian life? We talked about the essential marks of a pagan life. What are the essential marks of a Christian life? There's very three, they're very simple. Number one is ownership. I belong to God. This body is not my own. I belong to God. Lordship. I'm allowed stewardship over my body, but I'm also under the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is Lord over everything. And then citizenship. I belong to a different kingdom. These three marks these three indicators, I call them dashboard indicators, core values, priorities that guide my life, ownership, lordship, and citizenship. If I'm in the kingdom, these matter to me. Now, tomorrow, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. And Thursday, I'm going to warn you, uh, tomorrow, I'm going to talk about as a citizen of the kingdom, the person who's countercultural, do kingdom values matter 
in my speech what I say. Does it? Does it matter? Okay, we'll talk about it tomorrow. Thursday. Do kingdom values matter in my fashion? Does God give two hoots what I wear? Does he? It has gotten very quiet in here. And I get it. On that same flight from Texas, I had a little commuter plane, had a small jump from a little town to Dallas. It's an hour flight. Very beautiful college girl sat in front of me. And if you've been on a computer plane, you're about, it, she was catty cornered to me. So she's about 30 inches from me. We're all squeezed in. She has this massive cell phone. She lifts it up in her left hand. She's on the right side of the plane. She holds it almost in the middle of the aisle. So I was not sticking her, mine, I wasn't sticking my business in her nose. She was sticking her business in my nose. And she held it right up. The only way I could not see it is look out the window. But the entire flight, the entire hour on that flight, she went from one fashion page to the next. Now, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, okay? But I thought to myself, this beautiful, she looked like a collegiate athlete. She's kind of dressed like one. I said, this young lady, she went from one fashion page to the next, an hour of that. And just looking at one outfit, the other, this, that. And, and I thought, she doesn't even know it, but she's allowing somebody to speak their value system into her life. And she's going to ultimately be influenced by that. You say, oh, come on, doc, just an hour flight. The most recent research from Barna, the president of Barna just said this. Do you know how many hours you spend being influenced by the value system of God's kingdom? The average Christian in America, do you know how much time they spend being influenced by the kingdom of God's values? 300 hours a year. Do you know how many hours you spend being influenced by this value system? This little thing in your hand? You know how many? 2,700 a year. So you are feeding your mind something. Something's going somewhere, I hope, unless it's so empty it just passes clean through. I don't think that's what's happening. Surely it's getting lodged somewhere in there. So we are feeding our heads. We are allowing. You and I, all of us, are under intense pressure from the value system of this present world. And what I want to do is sort of say, Hey, wake up. Think about this. Values, the world has its value system. It's trying its best to squeeze you into its mold. Now, I'm not going to give you cut and dried, black and white answers about speech or fashion. or the, I'm certainly nobody to give advice on fashion, that's for sure. But we're going to talk about it. You know why we're going to talk about it? <clears throat> when I come back, we're going to talk about relationships, sexual purity, and all that kind of stuff. The reason I, here's why I'm going to talk about it. Because what I find out is hardly anybody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And what I also know is we're going to talk about the areas 
where the highest pressure is on you right now in your life. And the fact of the matter is God's word has something to say about them all. It does. And you and I need to hear those values so that we have something we can use to make a decision with in our life. Father, thank you this morning for this group of men and women that are here today. We're so grateful for what you've done in their lives. We're constantly hearing stories when we come on campus. This person's from a mission field. This one came from a MK that's here. Or this one has had this, and this one's done this, and, or we're going here to do that. What wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stories. What a wonderful group of young men and women that love God. But Lord, all of that never negates the fact we need to talk about what your word says, what its values say to us about some of the practical areas of life that that can kind of get shoved to the side because they're not always popular to talk about. So Lord, give give us courage, give us grace, give us understanding. Give us open ears to hear you, what you have to say to each of us in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Avery. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.